guest is Dan Moran. Growing up in the border tourist town of Gananoque, Ontario, Dan got his start in the service industry at an early age. Dan moved to Kitchener-Waterloo to attend university and worked at notable local establishments such as the Bomber, Ethels, and the Duke. Eventually, Dan got into the ownership side of the business and is currently part of the ownership group behind Red Rabbit in Stratford. We talk about the importance of establishing a home and family-like atmosphere for regulars, as well as the fact that a good bar is comfortable and a great bar is home. Enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of the Industry Podcast, coming to you from Studio 258, as always. <laughs> With me, as always, Dan Soretta, the producer, engineer, brains behind the operation. How's it going, buddy? Well, not surprisingly, I'm still doing awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least one of us is. Yep. I've just given up on sleep until they let me put customers in my bar again. Um, <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. We'll see how this fucking goes, to be honest yeah. with you. Um, we have a great guest for you today, a, a great old friend of mine, somebody I've been with in the industry seemingly my whole life uh, in one way or another. Uh, Dan Moran is with us today and we're going to bring him in a little bit. Um, I'm excited because it's uh, also probably the first guest we've had on who's got more years in this fucking game than I do. So, <laughs> um, But uh, a couple things to just uh, mention once again. Uh, if you like the podcast, and I assume if you're listening to it, you do, uh, please help us out, subscribe, rate, and review. That's what drives interest, and uh, it's the best way to help us. So just slam that subscribe button, download, listen, rate, review. Really, really, really helps us out. That is correct. Okay, so let's just get right to it. Welcome, Dan Moran. How are you doing, buddy? Doing pretty good today. How are you guys doing? Well, it's... it's Groundhog Day in my house, yeah. my friends, but aside yes. from that, all good. A, but you've been, it sounds like you've been able to keep working through all this nonsense? Uh, through most of it. I mean, we're, we're very fortunate now that I'm part of a group of uh, staff-owned restaurants here in Stratford, Ontario. We tend to rely pretty heavily on, or as an industry here, we tend to rely pretty heavily on the tourist industry. But uh, we've gone out of our way to cultivate a good local following and good local crowd. So we've been able to keep uh, at least three of our places going full-time. Uh, with takeout and delivery, and uh, we were really fortunate to have opened a takeout chicken restaurant a week before dining rooms were shut down. So yeah, that's that was good timing. Yeah, uh, so I've switched from being a waiter to being a delivery driver and doing yeah, all the yeah. other stuff. But yeah, yeah, kind of just pitching in wherever you can, I guess, huh? Yeah, and that, that's the beauty of, of the way we do things. You know, we're staff owned, so if you got six staff in the room, chances are four of them are actually owners. So right. everybody kicks in, does whatever they have to do. And I want to get to that. We're obviously going to talk a lot about that because I think yeah. it's a really interesting what you're doing there. We'll get to that down the line. Um, I uh, am also interested, uh, like we, when you were mentioning um, how so much of your business is tourist-related, uh, for people who don't know, describe why that is in Stratford. Uh, Stratford, Ontario is home of the Stratford Festival. Stratford Festival is the world's largest uh, company festival, which means they've got a, a constant company of actors who work here. Started off as a Shakespearean festival in the 50s in literally a, a, an army surplus tent. Uh, now has four theaters of their own, largest being a couple thousand seats, and draws about what they refer to as a, a million visit days a year. So there's a, a million days a year where there's one person in town. So that's a lot of people that draws the town. Sure. Uh, we're also fortunate in that we're kind of central in Ontario, close to the U.S. border with Detroit. So we draw from all those areas as well. And, I mean, it must be crazy 
during this time. I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that you guys are still doing okay because you've developed a local crowd, but that's got to be a city that's really hurting during all this time. It certainly is. Uh, one of the nice things about this city and the industry in this city in particular is in the 70s when they realized um, that theater needed more than just theater to be popular, restaurants started developing uh, a real culture here, including a chef school and things that went year round. Um, back in the day, that, that chef school actually ran out of restaurants that would close all winter. And then in the summertime, they would open up the tourist trade. These days, we've developed enough of a foodie culture here in town. There's enough chefs around, enough good chefs who have ties back to that chef school uh, that we do have a year-round crowd. There's a lot of people who have moved here in the last 10, 15 years doing the uh, you know, escape Toronto and the larger centers. You can still commute easily to Kitchener, London, and those kind of areas. So we have a, a fairly large 30-plus crowd, a lot in the dual-income, no-kids category. So we're pretty well off as far as a city of 30,000 people goes for fine dining lovers and people who are willing to spend their money on it. Right. Um, well, I... I do want to, well, we'll get back to Stratford, obviously, because that's where you are now, but you had a long history of uh, time in the game before that, so we should get to it. You were um, born in Gananoque, Ontario, which is very close to where I was born in Kingston, and we have a lot of similar connections in that area as a result. You, and like me, you also came to Waterloo to go to university, but you're just a few years ahead of me. Just a couple. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I, I snuck into Waterloo uh, in 88 for a, a degree in water quality management, chemical cleanup. I thought I was going to save the world. I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, about three months in, I was on my way to a, a co-op interview. And I remember this is the 80s. So I'm wearing a suit with padded shoulders, cowboy boots with a two-inch heel. And I'm not a small man to start with. No. And I just happened to walk by the bomb shelter and think, you know, I could use a job. And I walked in and I stood there in the doorway of the, the office, which you may remember was a little on the small side. My shoulders were touching both sides of the door. And my head was touching the top. And basically they said, can you start tonight? <laughs> and uh, that's how I started working at the bomb shelter. Okay, well, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the bomb shelter because the three of us all worked there at varying yes. points. I worked there pretty much my whole university career. Dan did some DJing. And then did you, did you, were you just DJing? Or? Uh, I did some door, but I also worked with Dan. Uh, for Bet. Right. Well, we'll get to Bet. But um, yeah, you DJed. I did everything there. Dan, you pretty much did everything there as well. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting format, and I think actually, in many ways, a smart one that they did at Bond. So especially when you're dealing with four months turnover at all times, right? Um, so new new staff coming in every four months, and they would make you no matter what your qualifications were, and like. I had already bartended for a few years by the time I got hired there, and I still had to start on the door, and then you work your way up to, like, supervisor of the door, and then, <laughs> then they might let you be barback, right? And then yep. bartender, and then you could be head bartender, and then you could be night supervisor, and it just kind of went like that, but it was, it's going. kind of a great learning experience, and to get to, like, where you and I are now as owners in the industry we know like we can talk to our staff and know what the fuck we're talking about no matter what the job is and so i think that was kind of invaluable it it really was and i I think it it also from a a management ownership standpoint means everybody can do every job yes everybody's interchangeable and you know your door guys aren't just watching the door they're watching the drinks the the waitresses and the waiters aren't just watching the drinks they're watching the door and the crowd and 
it really led to a, a good camaraderie as well. I think there was, you know, certainly a good bit of, <clears throat> excuse me, a good bit of uh, competition for the good shifts and, and you know, sure. drawing your number back in those days to get the shifts. Right, they had an interesting system where you would show up on what Friday afternoon or something like that, and yeah, I think it was, and you drew everybody drew numbers, and then we would just sign up for our shifts. So nobody was responsible for making the schedule. Now they had if you had to reach a certain level, and they would be like, you get three shifts. Yeah, and at certain people, full timers got to draw before part timers, like stuff like that. There were and there you had were to rules pass to the it. test to work the busy nights. Yeah, there you know, were rules to work on the floor on rock and roll night. You had to be able to carry the pictures and do those things. Right, it really meant there was a healthy competition there. I think. Yeah, I tried yeah. to engender that in a lot of my staff going forward over the years for sure. I, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that in so long, and I wonder if something like that could work in today's climate. I mean, I'm at the point now where I kind of just sort of want my best guys on the best nights, my best guys and women on the best nights. Uh, but, I don't know, maybe there's a place for that in some kind of restaurants, I don't know. The bomb shelter had a, a unique thing in that, you know, it was a co-op school and you were changing your crowd every four months as well as your staff every four months. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and because it was a uh, you know, campus bar back in the day when campus bars were still the place to go for students, uh, it, ha- it had a draw its own. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I tend to agree with you in, in that good staff on the good nights. And regulars like to know who's going to be behind the bar. Regulars like to know who the waitress, you know, they got a favorite server or waitress. They, they want to know they're there on the nights they're there. Yeah. So I, in our, you know, in the non-student world, which we are, tend to be in these days, mm-hmm. I, I think it has a lot of advantages to have your staff cross-train and be able to do a lot of things, but also to have your consistent schedule, the best people on the best nights. And consistent people on the same nights you know we, we did that for a long time at the other uh, bar we worked together yes uh and i want to get to that because i think that's a really important point uh, i especially want to get to that with regards to you um but with regards to the bombshells while we're still on there so that's kind of interesting like maybe some of those things we could pass on certainly i know it would be really hard to get really qualified bartenders and servers at my place now if I told them they had to start by working the door. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah, but there, there is something to it, especially if you've never done those jobs. Well, and you know, for most of my career, that's what happened to me because, as you know, I'm a big guy yeah, and I can talk, so people would they would immediately try to throw me on the door and leave me there right. for a very long time. <laughs> and and I had, that's one of the reasons I ended up leaving the bomber is I had a hard they, they really wanted me to be on the door and not behind the bar. And, right. Uh, we all know where the money is. Sure, so, and I, I and I get both sides of it because honestly, of course, you want to go, you want to make some money, and like you, you, you know, you have more to offer than just standing at the door and talking to people. But also, your combination of size, and let me just say as well, like your what they one thing they really taught you at the bomber, and I this might have actually come from you, but um, was that there's so many ways to de-escalate a situation without touching a person. Oh, yeah. And you were, like, the... I mean, part of it probably was people looking at you and didn't want to fuck with you, but... The, <laughs> but uh, that always uh, helps. Yeah, I'm sure that helps. But also, you had that... Uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but you had that sort of aura about you where you could... You would just casually talk people off the cliff and de-escalate a situation without ever having to get physical. You know... I, I've always been a big guy, right? Growing up, everything else. And my dad always t- said to me, "You don't have to yell to get anybody's attention in a room. You're always going to have their attention." Yeah. So I learned that pretty young, and uh, I-, I learned that 
I would rather spend half an hour talking to somebody out of the situation than drag them out in five minutes for a couple of reasons. One, it's a lot easier on a body. Mm-hmm. And two, it, it's tough on the room. There was a study yeah. done I in the, geez, I guess it was early 90s. I was working in, a, in Garanaque, my hometown, and an Ontario hotel and restaurant study came out that said if you have a, a fight, a real fight in your bar, you're going to lose 75% of your business at the bar for the next 25 minutes. And you're going to lose 25% of your business at the bar for the rest of the night. Because everybody gets on edge. It's all gets, you know, and, and that everybody's having fun thing is gone. Now everybody's looking over their shoulder. And if you have a bunch of fights, I wonder what the percentage is over it, forever. Right? Exactly. And, and then when you're known as a place that has lots of fights, who do you draw? You draw the meatheads who want to fight. Mm-hmm. And there's always those guys, and there's always going to be out there, and there's some guys that you can't talk out. And but, uh, like if fucking Roadhouse has taught us anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so quick question, Dad, just for those uh, yeah. who don't know you at all. Like back in the '90s, uh, actually, how tall are you? Uh, six five. Six five. Yeah. So back in yeah. the '90s too, like weight wise, if you don't mind me asking. Three and change. Yeah, so yeah. just to give people an idea yeah. of what we're talking about. Because I remember you were super agile. Because remember when I was working with you, you kicked me in the back of the shoulder. Yeah. There, it was super quick, super fast, and just touched me like a feather. Just to show me just how agile you were. And I was like, Jesus Christ. You know, I, I recently tried out for the Waterloo football team, uh, yeah. having never played football in my life. And did winter workouts one year. And they on those stairs the pack, they used to make you run up and down the stairs, you know, hop oh, on yeah. one foot and up. But they did the damn things by alphabetical order. And everybody else that had the same last name or first letter of their last name as me were running backs and DBs. <laughs> so here's me running. And, of course, the coach is yelling at me, keep up, keep up, keep up. And every once in a while, they stop and go, hold on. He's keeping up. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, yeah I've, I've been known as being, for my size, so I'm not quick in general, but for my size, and, and I'm certainly quick and agile. I've, seen, I've seen you made some, make some pretty quick moves over the year, for sure. <laughs> uh, I... So getting back to that, though, like when I started working there, we had a bunch of cowboys on the door, guys from small towns in northern Ontario, yeah. a lot of guys from Capas Casing, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and there were. So yeah, yes. And this is shortly <laughs> after you left. Like we didn't cross over working at the bomb show at the same time, but I had already known you. That will, And we'll get to that. That's a different story. But um I, like, I remember when I first started working there, these were the days where they would take you out head first and use your head to open the door. Yeah. Like, it was... And, a, that, and that, of course, in a university setting where it's a university-owned bar where the university holds a liquor <laughs> license, gets dicey in a hurry. Oh. But, you know, when I started there, they had just revoked the old beer hall rules. You know, mm-hmm. those rules that were still on the door, beside the, the wall beside the door there. Things like you couldn't carry a pitcher from one table to another. Right, you couldn't uh, move your own. You no, couldn't yeah, move a chair. Yeah, you couldn't, couldn't move, move a chair. chair. I remember that one. Yeah, because a couple of years before that, it had gotten out of hand in there, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the football team used to sit in the back and smash pitchers off their heads and fight the rugby team, and, and it, it was really out of hand. Yeah, and uh, I was one of the first generation that came in after that to try and calm it down. Yeah, and we were very much told that you know if there's a problem, solve it, but try to do it without getting the imprint, which was the campus paper, pissed off that week. Well, and I, I, I still have a collection of probably about two dozen places in the Emperor where I was called a fascist or a Nazi or. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that after you left, it started to creep back too, because then then we did have some blowback from student government, and we had to clean it up a little bit. But right, I right after you left, I started, and there were 
like I said, it was cowboy time again. It was okay. like the. I remember guys, door guys, letting what girls skip the lines, and if they gave them a blowjob in the janitor's closet and shit, and like, yep. it, it was crazy times there. It's hard to ima- even imagine today's generation of what's acceptable. That shit like that, that I was involved, I'm old enough that I was involved in times like that at a bar. It just seems like another, seems like a different life. Well, you think back to the way security was done 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It was cowboy. It was very cowboy. It was very big guy versus little guy. But you know what changed a lot of that? And one of the reasons I ended up getting out of the security end of the business was the, was phones, was texting. Because all yeah. of a sudden somebody get beat up and they text 20 of their buddies. Right, and or things would get really out of hand. Or now they can take quickly. a fucking video of you, right? So and that's the other thing. All of a yeah. sudden, now you got proof in court, and there's all the rest of that. And this is good. This is a good thing. It's very good thing. Yeah. You know, when they changed up the industry and, and made security, um, you know, a licensed job as opposed to just whoever happened to show up, it got rid of a lot of the meatheads with you know five or six or seven assault convictions and all the rest of that stuff. Mm-hmm. But even when I was running security at clubs, I always believed you had to have one guy, maybe two, that you kept on a leash in the back room. And, uh, <laughs> didn't let him out until the fight started. But when the fight started, you needed those guys. So I had a few of those over the years. Oh, fuck, man. I saw, I saw a guy beat a dude with a phone book in the office because they had learned on, like, I don't know, yeah. law, law and Order or some fucking place. Yeah, that, you punch it through a phone yeah, that, that it wouldn't leave a mark, right? Yeah, it leaves a, yeah, it leaves a wider print, so it doesn't look like a fist. Yeah. Um, okay, so you also start working during this time, and I didn't realize this. I thought this happened later, so it was, it, it's, for someone who's known you this long, it was kind of interesting to read your bio because there was shit I didn't really know, amazingly. All the time we spent with nothing to talk about at working partners <laughs> together. How oh, this didn't come up. <laughs> um, you started working for Bent then, and Bent is was uh, well. You tell us what it was. Bent is, is the board of entertainment of the University of Waterloo, which is the group part of student government that put on all the musical and non-musical entertainment on campus, whether it was in a campus bar or in a you know in the gym or, or outside or wherever it was. We were responsible for all the entertainment on campus. So bands, spoken words, everything you can imagine that would happen on a, a university campus for entertainment. And yeah, I started working with them in 889 because my roommate had actually taken a volunteer position uh, as a student on the student government board of, of Bent. And they, oddly enough, needed a security guy. And I yeah. showed up one day and started working security. And uh, But two months later, someone said, here, push this up that ramp. And then I was on the crew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eventually ended up as, as the producer, uh, and I was actually the last producer of Bent. They uh, they changed the format pretty dramatically after that, after the collapse of Fed Hall and all those things. And, right. Uh, so and I was you, actually the last producer of Bent. You were working for a kind of legendary character in the community, Emmanuel Patterson, at yes. the time. Uh, and he went on to work for Live Nation. Yeah. Uh, Live Nation now, it's funny, he's in the same office he's been in for almost 20 years, same phone number, but the company's had about five names. It's been MCA Universal, it's been Live Nation, it's been uh, House of Blues Music, but it's the same office, the same people doing the same things. Yeah. And we started working with them at that time. He was doing uh, small events for them and you know festivals and fairs and that kind of stuff, and we'd, we'd bring our crew from the university out to do those. And when I... I, it's also a little hard to understand now for people, but back in the day when we were in university, they would have big, now often Canadian bands, don't get me wrong, but big name Canadian bands playing at Fed Hall, which was the, yeah. sort of the nightclub campus 
bar and that bomb shelter, which was the campus pub. We, but we had like names that like Hayden and Our Lady Peace and um, there were there were regulars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were regulars that would come all the time. And what's that? We had uh, two of Sloan's farewell shows there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So not not a whole lot of big American bands, but as far as Canada went, they would. I guess these bands would just do the the university circuit, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, well, a little bit, but also uh, University of Waterloo had a unique structure in that. Fed Hall was built as an entertainment venue. Mm-hmm. It was built with a professional sound system. And we were the only campus in Canada at that time that had a professional crew. Uh, Bent had a crew that were trained pros. You had to work your way up and, and were taught by professionals. Uh, so when you showed up at, the, at most universities, you know, the football team or the rugby team or whatever would show up and unload your gear and drop half of it. I don't know what the hell they were doing. Right. You showed up in our place. You had a professional promoter. You had a professional crew. You had great sound men. You know, we were very lucky to get some really good traveling sound guys who lived in Kitchener-Waterloo at the time who would do gigs for us. So we had a unique advantage there. And, you know, uh, having listened to your earlier podcast with Glenn Smith, we also had that advantage of being between large venues. Right. So we would get even international acts that were maybe playing Detroit and then going to play Toronto, and we would put them up for a night or two here and get another gig for them and, and get some more money rolling through the till. So we got international acts like the the and, you know. Yeah. You know, Bob Mole playing those kind of guys that were on tour and playing, you know, 2,000 seat venues. And we had a 2,000 seat venue, which was fucking, rare at a university. Fucking David Wilcox falling off his stool yeah. at Fed Hall because <laughs> he was so blasted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's how I met Dan. Funnily enough, <laughs> my first gig with Ben ever doing security was on the Village Greens. It was an outdoor show, uh, you know, just after Frost Week, beautiful summer day. And it was Kim Wilson. Or sorry, right. Kevin. Kim, uh, Kim Mitchell, sorry. Kim, Kim, Mitchell, Kim Mitchell. Mitchell, yeah. And it was the year he'd put out Patio Lanterns. Right. So I'm standing in the front of the stage, and he says to me, just getting ready to do the, the encore, which is going to be Patio Lanterns. He taps me on the shoulder and says, do you think you can carry me? I'm like, God, what do you weigh, 105 pounds? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get on your shoulders. We're going to walk out in the crowd, and I'm going to play the solo. He was, her- when- he was heroin chic back then. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, of course, this is also when uh, the IR, the infrared stuff was new. So a wireless guitar was kind of a cool new thing at the time. Right. But my very first gig, I got to walk out with who was, at that time, a Canadian rock star. Sure. On my shoulders in the middle of a crowd of adoring fans. And it was I was kind of hooked at that time. Yeah, point. that's cool. Yeah. Uh, that's a good story. So you, from there... You decide that you are gonna. I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit. You decided that you wanted to give up on school for a little bit and go do some other shit, right? You just yeah. I was less and less enamored with school and more and more enamored with the music business and the and the bar business, of course, because they were a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it. Um, so you go to you go back to like Gananoque, Kingston area for a little bit. Yeah, I ended up, I didn't know what I was going to do. My, my marks were, you know, getting on the borderline of me taking a forced vacation anyway, so I decided I was going to take a little time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, went, yeah, went back to Gananoque, ended up working in a factory, uh, doing chemical cleanup work and hating it and realized I made a good choice not to stay in school. Right. At the same time, I was running a, a place called The Carriage House, which was a, a local hotel, bar, uh, and this is, of course, in the heyday of karaoke, and uh, I heard Leonard Skinner by... Redneck farmers more time than I care to mention. <laughs> uh, but again, realized there was money to be made. Uh, sure. That was the year the loony became a thing. Oh, okay, yeah. Keep the change. Yeah. Was, uh, was oh my god! What a board. what a fucking game changer that was for all of oh. us. For for all of you who are way younger than us, 
who operate this podcast who don't realize who grew up in the age of the Looney and Tootie. This was a, a literal game changer. People generally leave you their change, but they would be, they're, very, they're much more, they're much more, they're much less likely to leave you built. And that's the same today. Like, well, now nobody pays cash, but when, when people were still paying cash, um, and fuck, man, when the dollar and two dollar coins showed up, all of a sudden, the change that they're leaving you is like a 300% increase on your tip. Yeah. Well, especially in the first six months or so when nobody really caught on yet to leave the yeah. change, man, they were leaving a dollar. Yeah, we're yeah. taking pictures of change out of our tip trough every half hour. Oh, and, and loving it. So it was a good, even though it was a crappy bar, it was a good time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So then you go from the carriage house. Is this when you start wor- working at Toucan or did you go to Yukon? It, it gets a little muddy in there in my brain, even to be honest with you. But okay. I was also working at um, the Thousand Islands Playhouse, which was a, a local summer stock theater running their bar. I, I always had three or four jobs all the time. And then ended up deciding I, I didn't really want to live, work in my hometown anymore. Very small town, full of people I'd been grousing with my whole life, so I decided to get the hell out. And, and Kingston was a great option, 20 yeah. minutes away. And the Toucan was my favorite bar. And right. once again, I walked in one day and said, hey, anybody need a bouncer? And they went, yeah, can you start tonight? Right. And I started that night. Okay, so this is, this is when uh, young Kip Saunders intersects with uh, slightly older Dan Moran. As I was sneaking into the Toucan underage during this time, because it was also my favorite bar. And just for, if anyone is listening in the, from the Kingston area, or anyone plans a visit to Kingston when we're all allowed to travel again, I highly recommend going to the Toucan. It's a, oh, King, it's, a it's a fucking Kingston still institution. Open, eh? Yeah, still open. Um, it's funny. patio. There's a, a, a great bartender in KW right now, Matt Houston, who's also from Kingston, but he's several years younger than me. And he, when we when we realized that we both went were from Kingston, he immediately was like, two kids, two kids. We're like, well, you still, people still talk about it, right? Oh, so yeah. you're working the door. I'm sneaking in. Uh, and that's when I first met you. Uh, you probably, I'm sure you thought I was 19, but, <laughs> or, or, or well, you didn't say care. Did, sure. <laughs> or, yeah. Or let's just say I was already, it, it's, it's kind of like that transitional period where I was already in there every day when you started working. So it's like, you're not checking my ID really, you know? It was, uh, it was the kind of place where you didn't ask questions of the regulars. Right. As long yes. as the regulars knew enough to keep their shit solid and, and not be an idiot. Yeah. You didn't ask too many questions. And I had a pretty serious drug problem back then, so it's amazing that you didn't have <laughs> an opportunity to just tell me to not come back. But somehow you didn't. And we just sort of became friends just shooting the shit at the door. Um, I want to talk about, if you're okay talking about this, a very famous story of you working at the door at the Toucan back in the day. I think you know where this is going. Uh, yeah, probably. Okay. <laughs> I haven't well, told this one in a long time. You know that, right? Well, sorry. You're on the podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen it coming when you agreed. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I'm going to tell my version of through the rumor mill what the story was. I was there that night, but I didn't see anything happen. I just heard about it. And then you can tell me what actually happened or tell me what I got wrong or what, and what I got right. What, from what I understood happened was this fucking tweaker who used to try and come into the toucan all the time, and he caused trouble, and you guys had banned him. And 
he just kept trying to come back, though. He just kept trying to come back. And he just kept getting more and more aggressive every time he came back. And then, the, so from what I understand, what happened that night, and again, correct me if any of this is wrong, is that he came back and you were like, you guys had a bit of a confrontation. I don't know exactly how that went. You could probably fill in those gaps. But he was like, fuck you. I'm going to come back and I'm going to fucking kill you. And he came back with an ice pick. <laughs> Most of you people say that and you never see them again. But no, this guy, this guy, this guy was serious. And he came back with an ice pack pick. And I don't know if he actually stabbed you with it. I think the story I heard was he stabbed you with an ice pick. And you picked him up by the genitalia with one hand. Because <laughs> he was... A, now, granted, you're a very large, strong man. But he was also a very... He was a heroin adult. Tweaker is the right word. Yeah, he probably, probably yeah, tweaker is the right word. He probably weighed like 80 pounds soaking wet. But you picked him up with one hand and crushed his testicles and what they had to call the, <laughs> they had to call the ambulance and he went to the hospital with crushed testicles. How much of this story is accurate? Clear it up once and for all. You're in the high percentages. <laughs> you know, if, if no one's ever been to the Toucan, to get to the, the door of the Toucan proper, you have to go down an L-shaped alleyway that mm -hmm. has two exits onto different streets. Uh, he had come down the one street, the alley I saw him coming, told him to bugger off, as I usually did, and he was particularly fucked up that night on whatever he couldn't sell to teenagers. And... Uh, <laughs> And I was in the bar, so fuck. Yes, yeah, so he was <laughs> So he, he, he made the threat. And, you know, I, I learned a long time ago that in a security position, you take a threat seriously. If someone says they're going to try and kill you, you treat it like they're going to try and kill you because you never know when they're going to. Right. So he came back down the short side of the alleyway, which I hadn't seen him coming down until he was almost upon me and immediately pulled out. An ice pick. And, and where the hell he found an ice pick, I can't even imagine. <laughs> Sticking to my left arm. Um, not far enough to do any major damage, but it, it went into my left arm. And from that, I'll be honest, I don't remember. Yeah, I blind rage. Yeah. And, and that was that blind rage thing. And I assume what happened, and I was told this by the guys I was working with, first thing I did was just reach out to grab him. And, of course, right hand goes, and it's by my side, and I reached out, and I got him by the testicles. And <laughs> apparently bounced him off the wall a couple of times. <laughs> and he did end up in the one in the ambulance to the hospital. <laughs> Uh, ambulance asked me if I wanted to go because at that point I had an ice pick in my arm. Uh, I said, no. I I, okay, sorry, just for the details, was this still sticking out of your arm? I don't believe so at that time. I think once <laughs> the ambulance got there, it was gone, but I, I had pulled it out myself. Right. Uh, it would have still been in your arm when you... It would have been still been in your arm when you picked him up, though. I would presume so at that yeah. point. Yeah. Like I say, you, you get that blind rage yeah, thing yeah. and you get really going and... I'm not proud of that, but it happens to me now and again when I get really going. So, sure. I the ambulance asked if I wanted to the hospital. I said, "No, I got to finish my shift." <laughs> <laughs> so I went to, bar, went to the bar and slapped the bandage on it to finish the shift, not thinking anything of it, and, and really not thinking it was anything spectacular. And of course, those things take a life of their own on. Sure. And uh, it, it became a thing that made my job much easier for a little while. Oh fuck! I better. <laughs> nobody really wanted to screw you after that for a while. Yeah. Well, and also think about like, just how different life was back then. Just oh. the story, like the humor of that story is evident. But think about how, like, if you got stabbed with an object from a tweaking fucking drug dealer in an alley, 
Yeah. There's no way you're not going to the hospital and getting no, every I, kind I of test. Stop to hit the guy. Yeah, out of the street of the hospital. Yeah, just getting yeah. making sure that nothing happened. Like you didn't catch some sort of weird infection or disease or yeah. whatever the fuck, right? Like, but yeah. again, you're 20 years old. You think you're yeah. invincible, so. Yeah, Kingston had that unique thing going on. You you go to a bar, the Kingston like the two can, and you look down, and the, the bar there'd be a couple of bikers, and then maybe a lawyer and a crown attorney couple of prison guards, a couple of military guys, and everybody mixed in Kingston. That was a, that thing about mm -hmm. Kingston that it didn't really have that this bar is for the bikers and this bar is no. for everybody hung together. So when stuff got wild, it got interesting. <laughs> people, really, people really don't understand that about Kingston is that exact vibe. People visit there and like, oh, my God, down on Ontario Street, it's so beautiful by the water or whatever. And they're 100% right. But there's a whole other side of Kingston. And... For instance, my uh, buddy's uncle, when I was in high school, used to own the Portsmouth Tavern. And it was, <laughs> the ports. And, and this, yeah, the ports, yeah. And this guy, this goes to exactly what you're talking about, is how everybody just kind of melded together. That bar is located directly beside what is closed now, but at the time was the Kingston Penitentiary, which was the, the main maximum security penitentiary in... Kevin. Kevin. Yeah. And, and at the time, Kingston also had eight penitentiaries in the surrounding area. <laughs> it was fucking crazy. Like, growing up in a town like that, that's it. So, the people who lived in the area by the Portsmouth Tavern were prison guards, prisoners who had just been released, and families of prisoners who were currently in prison. And yeah. they all hung out at the Portsmouth Tavern. <laughs> and they all drank together. Yeah. yeah. So, you'd have prison guards drinking <coughs> beside an ex-con... Yeah, that, somebody they've been put in a cell two days ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, it was like, one of the like, weird things about Kingston too. Is I mean, you had that, and then you had the military base. You had yes. two universities mm -hmm. plus a, a college, and all that together. When you were doing security in that town, you were never sure what was coming down the pipe. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the threat you took it seriously in that really? town. So do you? Uh, so do you think to get away from the sort of to get into more serious question? Do you think that that really honed your security? Um, I don't know, a little proper way to say it is like hone you at, to become a more well-rounded, better security guard was just... It taught me a lot about trying to read people before you get into a situation. Right. In a town like that, you could step into something and not know all of a sudden you were fighting, you know, Wally or one of the guys you shouldn't have been fighting at the time because right. you didn't assess the situation first. Right. Uh, and it really taught me that that extra 20 seconds of stepping back and figuring out what's actually going on uh, before you dive in, either to talk or to fight, was yeah. necessary, and that and that translates to a lot of things over my career. You know, whether it's serving customers or or working security, being able to figure out who people are and what they want uh, became really important very fast there. But you get fucking good at it, right? And I think, yeah, that, yeah like you and can almost fast. you get you can read a person as they walk into a room. And we we've talked about this before on the podcast, but. I love getting surprised now because I've been in the game so long, but 90% of the time you're right as soon as you somebody walks in. Oh, in the high 90s, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in the high 90s. Uh, well, especially then the longer you go in the game, the more the higher that yeah. percentage gets. But don't you love being surprised still? It's but, the best. You, know, you, you yeah. get somebody to walk in, and you know now I'm in casual fine dining, a lot of tourists, and you think, oh, God, this is going to be a Karen for sure. <laughs> and then you become the nicest, sweetest person in the world, you think, oh, well, and yeah, it, it's, it's almost like an extra tip. Yeah. Really nice. yeah, 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 it is, right? Like, and, and you almost don't even care if those people 
do tip you aside everybody tip all the time please but you almost don't care if those people <laughs> don't tip you because you're so happy to be surprised that they weren't an asshole but a 10 percent tip from them is better than a 30 percent tip from an asshole yeah, it just always make up for being an asshole. One hundred percent. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> and yeah. I think that like this is not an excuse for nice people to tip less, but <laughs> yes. but but bear in mind we're all human beings in this industry, and we care more about being treated like human beings and having a nice interaction with people than we care about the money. I know everybody thinks everybody's in this industry is just greedy and trying to get that tip money. Yeah, I'm sure there are people out there like that, but. The majority of us, I would say, would like to have a nice... We're in the industry because we like to be social. We would like to have a nice social experience with the person we're serving. This is our social life. And and if we want to be rich, we wouldn't be bar and restaurant owners. Fucking right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's... I always say a kind word and a smile goes so far in any bar, restaurant, cafe, coffee shop situation. Even to the kid behind the counter at McDonald's. Yeah. You know, who gets crapped on all day. A smile and a kind word can make that kid's day or yes. week. And, and if you want to get more grandiose about it, let's just be honest. In all aspects of life, let's all try and remember yeah. that shit, right? Now, that this, this feel-good moment is not what this show is about, so we're going to keep moving on. <laughs> we'll, move on to that. <laughs> yeah. we'll move on to more bitching. <laughs> um, okay, so I those two kind days, that's when I met you. Uh, you come back to oh no you go to Yukon after that or do you come back to Kitchener? in the middle there I, I actually ended up working at Toucan before and after I was at the Yukon okay so um, let's talk about the Yukon please this is- so yeah I was about 20 years old and I was getting a big head because I was winning a lot of bar fights because I was fighting university kids that know what they were doing oh and as an aside the fucking outlaws who run a lot of Kingston's underground there there's a big biker gang there so I'm sure you had to deal with a lot of that yeah, I get into that later on with the abstract days too. But anyway, I, I, I wanted to travel, and uh, I was going to do the backpack across Europe thing. And my dad actually, who was a, a, a massive traveler himself, he's always had an itchy foot, said to me, "Oh, you've never really seen your own country. Never been further west than Toronto. Now I'd never been further east than Quebec City at that time." And uh, he said, "Why don't you see your own country?" So I did. I bought a pickup truck, threw a cap on the back, and started driving and eventually the road ran out around Whitehorse. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I realized I needed to find a job. So I, uh, now can I just interject for a quick second? Do you find that you as a person are fairly, I I know you, I'm I'm going to, I have my own opinion about this, but do you find that you're a fairly independent, solitary person? So, Oh yeah. I, I always have been. Yeah, so something like that is not a necessarily daunting proposition to you. No, to like it, was, it was actually exciting way. to me. Yeah, it was very exciting to me to you know, hop in my truck and, and just go drive. And then I would do things like I would just see something that I thought might be interesting and pull off the side of the road. I was in the middle of Alberta and looking for a camping spot, and the camping spot in town was next to the cemetery. I knew that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. And somebody said, "Well, just a couple of hills over, there's some camp spots." So I just kept driving and found a man-made lake full of pelicans. In the middle of Alberta. Wow. <laughs> Sat there for two days and fished and fed pelicans for the hell of it by myself. It was off-season. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, that kind of stuff is very common. I, I tend to strike it on my own and just go find what I find interesting. Yeah, you're very, comfortable. Find, uh, you're very comfortable with yourself and by yourself. I certainly am. Yeah. And, 
oftentimes if having somebody else with you, you, you guys have both traveled together and separately with other people, yeah. you know, you don't always get along with the other person. And I don't like not getting along. So I just yeah. go on my own. It's easier. Yeah. <laughs> Especially back in those days, right? No internet. Like you might no. be able to get a book to figure out what's going on, but otherwise it's just like fly by the seat of your pants. No. Right. And I've always been a good talker, of course. You know, yeah. I just go talk to whoever I talk to. And, and of course I didn't have the worries. You know, I, I was sleeping in the back of my truck and, when I when I lived in Whitehorse for the first three months or two months I was there, I lived in the back of my truck in a roadside pull off, and most people were like, "Oh, weren't you scared?" No, nope, not really. No, you know, I had my my walking stick and my knife, and it is what it is. But and some of that was being twenty and dumb. <laughs> and some of that was being me. So yeah. yeah. Okay, so I you got, make it you make it as far as Yukon with Whitehorse. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty crazy and you get a job working again security at a bar in Whitehorse correct yeah I just I started walking around looking for a job and uh, the first bar I walked in he said no we don't need anybody you know try these guys and, and eventually the third bar needed somebody and it was again it was one of those things you know can you start tonight and I did right and uh, it was promised I'd eventually get some bartending shifts and did but uh, but mostly worked the door and, and uh, that's where I realized I was not invincible but yeah, talk to me about that bar. Talk to me about what, like, the concept of the bar, and if a bar in Whitehorse even has a concept. But talk to me about the bar, the clientele, your experience there. Well, in, in the Yukon, the law is, or, or was, I don't know if it still is, to be honest with you, that if you had a, a liquor license, you also had to have hotel rooms. The theory being if somebody got too drunk, you had someplace to oh, put Oh, is that right? That's interesting, yeah. So all the all the bars were in hotels. And some of them were, like, old hotels, you know, like like... The, you know, the city hotel or one of the old hotels in Kitchener. Mm-hmm. And some were in actual hotels. Right. Trapper's Cabaret and Roadhouse was the only live rock and roll north of 60. Okay, I just, want to take a, rock band. I just want to take a slight time out to say that Trapper's Cabaret and Roadhouse is an amazing name for a fucking bar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> now you it is okay. <laughs> it, it kind of makes you picture what the place looked like. Oh, I can see it in my mind, yeah. Yep. Big roadhouse, and they get these bands up from uh, usually Calgary, and they'd be glam rock cover bands, mm-hmm. and they would play for a month straight, six <laughs> nights a week, four sets a night for a month. And, and you're but just they were the only game in town, and they're just talking dirty to you the whole time. Oh yeah, <laughs> and uh, they also quickly realized I knew what I was doing around sound gear, so I became the backup sound man. Right. But the clientele was whoever wanted to go see a rock show. Sure. So lumberjacks and miners who had been in camp for a, a month and had a month's worth of pay in their pocket hadn't seen a woman or a beer in a month and come to decide what they wanted to do first. Yeah. And, and what, what's the what's the discrepancy between or like the like what's the percentage for man to woman in a bar like that? Like what's the percentage? Uh, probably in Whitehorse, probably four to one men to women. Um, right. If you were out in one of the smaller areas, it would be twenty or thirty to one. Right. And the camps, there just there weren't any women out in the, in the lumber camps, right. the mining camps. Like, there might be one as the cook, but her husband probably ran the place. So that just fucking smells like trouble to me already. Because you oh, got yeah. a bunch, you got a bunch of tough dudes and a very small who, ha- who haven't seen a woman women in a while and a, and very, a very small pool of women. Yes, right. Yeah. And yeah. so we I, would do things. You, you, you talk about back in the day trying to get into place. The owners, or the managers said to us, the owners were actually hauling American cruise lines, if you want to, because it was a hotel owned by Westmark Hotels, which was owned by Holland American Cruise Lines. But the bar ran separately. And we were told, we don't care 
as long as the place is full and the cover gets paid, we don't care what else happens at the door. Yeah. Wow. So there was a standing. If you want to get in and beat the line with a girl, it's 100 bucks each. So 200 bucks, you and a girl. Sure. You want to get in by yourself, it's 150 Right. And and we just split the money up. I would often take home five or $600. Wow. Uh, From working Friday the night, working the door. Wow. As, and I, I was taking the junior cut at first. Yeah, and and that's in addition to your what you're getting paid. Obviously. Your wage. Yeah. Now, also, you got to remember at that time, minimum wage in Whitehorse was eighteen dollars an hour. Jesus. Because Christ. you know that's everything better. costs so much. So today, these guys would show up and, and they would spend all their money, and be broken, you know, in twenty eight days and go back to the lumber camp and work for another twenty eight days. Right. But they were but they're, but they're making good money that. too. Like that. They're, that's, oh yeah, they're those making good jobs. Money. Yeah. Yeah. And they were spending it as fast as they were making it, which, of course, was nice for us. Right. And it, it got tough. The uh, the head bartender there when I, or head uh, security when I started there was a guy named Midget. And they called him Midget because he was an tall. inch shorter than all of his brothers, but yeah. he was still taller than me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> three, three biker brothers who had left Vancouver about two steps ahead of the RCMP. So you can imagine what kind of crew he ran. Mm. It was uh, fights... Broke out quick, and they often ended very quickly and almost always with ambulances. Right. Uh, but I'd been there about two weeks, and the RCMP, of course, the RCMP are the only police up there. And you have to remember, the city of Whitehorse is, is the size of Prince Edward Island. Mm-hmm. has a population of 30,000 at that time, uh-huh. and had 28 police officers. Wow. So your backup was often a couple hours away if you had a police officer. Well, I think that that probably sounds good to a lot of people these days, but back in yeah. that day and in that kind of town. Like. A different kind of town, exactly. Yeah. So the, I've been there a few days, and the sergeant, staff sergeant pulls up one day, say, you're new in town. I says, yeah, I'm going to tell you the rules. You get a problem with somebody, you beat him. When he's unconscious, give us a call. We'll come pick him up. Wow. And that was my introduction to bouncing in Whitehorse. So. Holy shit. Eh? Just I learned like, very what? quickly I was in a different world. What a different fucking world. But what also, like, what a time warp. Like, I, I, I can't even imagine, like, do you have any kind of an inkling of about what might be going on there now? Like, it can't be like that, obviously, but... It's still the Wild West compared to here. I, I still sure. have some friends up that way. But it, of course, has cleaned up some. They, they've more than doubled the size of the police force. There's now a native police force there as well that deals with most of the native issues. So they've mm. expanded a lot of that. But it's still, I mean, you're still in the extreme north. And, and when you're really on the frontier like that, the same rules just don't apply right. uh, of, of, you know, social and everything else. And it's accepted. Uh, the frontier mm-hmm. justice is a thing. Yeah. You know, if there's a guy who everybody knows is an asshole, chances are one day he's going to meet four or five guys in an alley and they're going to take care of it. It's like a time warp at a different world at the exact same time. Almost. It, it really is. And it was, it was eye opening to a 20 year old kid who grew up in, you know, very genteel Southern Ontario mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Yeah. And it, it taught me very quickly that I was not the toughest guy in the world. Yeah. Uh, I could hold my own, but I certainly was not the toughest guy in the world. And, you know, yeah. they, they actually still had bare knuckle boxing up there as a competitive sport when I was working there. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like Oshawa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My hometown. Oshawa and steroids. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Well, that's crazy. So, what, I mean, this is almost the dumbest question I'm ever going to ask on this podcast ever. So, zone in what made you want to come back (laughs) (laughs) i was really thinking about trying to finish school to be honest with you i thought maybe i should go back and finish up that degree i'd sunk a few years into it and 
I also realized that as much as I was having a lot of fun and I was drinking and I, and I certainly loved my my outdoor time, you know, I was, I was camping and fishing and hunting. Uh, I missed civilized conversation to be honest with you. I bet. The crowd I was hanging with, the conversation involved one other beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was it. So yeah. I, I was missing some of the, the civilized conversation of, of, of a university setting. Right. And it's really what drew me back to Waterloo. Uh, even if you're not in the universities, it's much easier to have a interesting conversation with somebody you're going to bump into uh, in that part of the world. And I think there was some family pressure as well. Uh, you know, my, my mom wasn't terribly happy. I was ha- her little boy was halfway around the world working as a bouncer. Right. So that, all that kind of came together. And uh, I had promised my mother that I would re-enroll in school and did. And then I realized I had eight days to be there and I was still in Whitehorse. Oh. <laughs> so I threw everything I owned in the back of the truck and drove 18 hour days. Wow. Uh, actually fell asleep at the wheel more than once, but once for a very long time on the way home. And like how uh, long is that, get back. How long is that, that drive straight? Uh, it took me six days. Six days. Uh, 18 hour days. Wow. And uh, oh, yeah. That sounds fucking awful. The most grueling thing I've ever done in my life for sure. So were you smoking, uh, smoking a bunch of weed and just listening to a lot of classic rock? Like, how did that go? Uh, no, not that. It was a lot of, uh, a lot of cigarettes and coffee and Whatever happened, you, you get on the radio station. You know, it, I, that truck only had an AM FM radio in it. Didn't even have a cassette deck. So still, lots of classic rock. Well, no, <laughs> you're, you're in Alberta. Ain't classic rock. It's classic country, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And there's no other choice. So, so yeah, it was a long drive home, but but it ultimately was good for me, of course. And then I got back to doing what I love to do here. Okay, so this is where you and I sort of reconnect. Is you get back and you start, you go back to work for. Bent. and yeah. I had just missed you at the bomb shelter at that time I started working there and I was like oh holy fuck Big Dan Big Dan's back <laughs> Big Dan's working for Manny and and you probably were like oh I know this little fucking punk because <laughs> uh, I was working at the bomb shelter which was your old stopping grab and, yeah. and so it's kind of funny how worlds reconnect in a way uh, and I had moved up pretty quickly at the bomb shelter, probably because I had already had experience in the bar business, so it wasn't hard for me to figure out the, the minor parts of it. It was just like, for me, it was figuring out how to get off the fucking door, where do I don't belong, and get back Figure out. how to work the system. Yeah, how, yeah, figuring out how to work the system. So yeah. I'll jump ahead a little bit, but there was a stretch where I was sort of the night super, one of the night supervisors, and you were working for Ben, and you were... Like, Manny wasn't around so much. You were kind of doing the shows. Like, you would you would be the guy present at the show. Um, yeah. Whereas it used to be Manny when I first started working there. And then you, you came back. He trusted you. Now, you're you're the guy with the boots on the ground at the show. And yeah, I started uh, shortly after I got back from Whitehorse. Uh, I, I worked at the bomber briefly after I got back, and that did not last long. Mr. Vaughn and I had some words, and that was that. Nah. But... Uh, of course, his brother-in-law, who I also worked for, was Emmanuel, <laughs> thought I was great, and, and just didn't want to do the small shows. He loved doing the big stuff, and at that time, he was doing more stuff with his own company as well. Sure. Uh, so he, he moved a lot of the smaller, the bomb shelter shows over to me, and even some of the, the lesser-known Fed Hall shows, I would be the, the producer for those shows. So he would book them, and, you know, write the contracts, and then I was always the one who was, had to be the stickler with the contracts and tell people no, and you owe us that, and beat them up for all the money we could. 
Right. And of course, Emmanuel was great at that. He, he really taught me a lot about contracts, fulfilling your contracts to the letter of the contract and screw the spirit of the contract because that's not in the letter. <laughs> we, made lot, we made an awful lot of money that way. Yeah. Well, I, what I remember <laughs> about those times, and one day that like this podcast could go on forever. I love talking to you. We've had so many yes. shared experiences, but we do need to move it along this way. But I, one day you and I can talk about the subculture of what was going on at the bomb shelter during those years because it was a fucking scene, man. Like I, I can't even tell you the shit that was going on there that in today's society would be like it would, oh. imagine, <laughs> imagine millennial university students putting up with what we did in those days oh, with that kid. Jesus like, Christ. Okay. Well, I'm not gonna tell yeah. the story right now, but remember initiation? Oh god, yeah. Okay. So let's just say that one day, <laughs> maybe in the future, I'll we'll have you back on and we'll talk about that specifically. Yeah. But yeah. I do want to talk this is where you and I reconnected and what really where we became friends because we weren't friends back then. I was just some fucking drugged out punk who hung out in the bar and tried not to give you any shit <laughs> uh, that, you, that you were the head of security for. So we become friends at this point, and you, you were running the shows that would come to the bomb shelter. I would be running the bar that night, and then you and I would sit down and drink a keg of beer after... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, show. pretty much. Yeah, uh, with a couple other people involved. Was like, yes. we're not we're not trying to overestimate our own um, drinking prowess, but well, no I fuck, man, I could not overestimate your drinking prowess during that time. I have seen like if anybody wants to see a lesson on drinking, if we had had cell phones back then, a good video. Holy well, thank shit. God we didn't. Yeah, <laughs> you would drink. Like I would be a puddle. I mean, obviously you're a bigger man than me, but I would be a puddle, and I like I can drink, and you would like pour me into your truck, take me to breakfast, get back at behind the counter at Angie's, cook breakfast for both of us, and then <laughs> and then take me back to our like our house that I share with uh, maybe Dan at the time, or no, this would, you might not have been living with us, but you would hang out at yeah, our place. Yeah, no, that's how I learned to drink a case of 50 with Dan, actually. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I would be like, we had a kingfish back at our like. Oh, it's where we lived on Churchill. Uh, oh right, or back even on Dawson where I would yeah. like have that keg fridge, and then we would empty that, and he'd be like, "Okay, I'm gonna drive home now." <laughs> You'd be fine. I'm like, "God damn, man, that guy could drink." And now, and at a certain point, you quit drinking altogether. Now, are you? What's your drinking situation now? Do you still drink or? I, I I am an, a casual, occasional drinker. I'm I'm not. Uh, I know you like your wine still. I like my wines. I like I like a cocktail now and again, usually with dinner and that kind of thing. But I've never done anything in half measures in my life. Right. Uh, You're not a half measure motherfucker. That's for sure. No, I'm really not. <laughs> and, and I realized at a certain point. I, I think this is this goes to our time together at Ethel's and, and when I was working there and, and still working for the universities and running security at Club Abstract. I was drinking six nights a week until, you know, going to Angie's afterwards for breakfast at seven in the morning or eight in the morning and going back and do it all again the next day. Yeah. And this is kind of when I started thinking about, you know, maybe this bar thing could be a career, not just something I'm doing while I'm having fun. And I realized that bartenders who drank like I did didn't survive. Mm. Uh, I was a, an extremely heavy drinker. No, no two ways about it. You know, yeah. 
I, we would laugh and say, oh, a binge drink is, it was an eight drinks. Uh, eight, we weren't even warming up in those days at eight drinks. Right. We would have, you know, that, that even started with me in, in Whitehorse. We used to do shots behind the bar while bartending. Sure. You know, and, and well, I, I think just, that still goes on. <laughs> no, but I, like, it was it was an official thing. They would ring a bell, mm. and everybody would step back from the bar, and the head bartender would line up four shots for the bartenders. Right. Do four shots and then start working again, and doing shots while you were working. So anyway, I drank a lot in those days. We'll put it that way. Yeah. And I, I realized would, that I volume did, wasn't long term. You know. I worked at a bar one time, and I'm not going to say where, and I'm not going to say with whom, but I worked at a bar one time where I would be told. Uh, telephone call and the telephone was situated behind the bar so you would walk around there would already be like Jagger bombs lined up for you in the middle of your show. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine where that would have been yeah well mm. anyway moving on yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah so yeah I, I, but how many years was it that you didn't drink at all uh probably four or five yeah in my my mid thirties, like maybe thirty, maybe thirty four to thirty nine, something like that, where I didn't drink at all. So, uh, and that, that was it was tough in the bar business for sure. Yeah, but I mean, whatever. You've always you, you have all the people I've ever known. You, you have no problem like creating your own path, my friend. So I'm sure it, it would have been harder. It would have been harder for other people. <laughs> yeah. I tend to be a stubborn SOB, yeah. Yeah. So, but but confident in what you're doing is right and not yeah. taking any blowback. I, okay, so let's talk about Ethel's for a little bit because you started working at Ethel's. I was still working at the bomb shelter when you started, first started working at Ethel's. You, and you, I remember you telling me, oh, you should come check out this new place that I'm working at. So I went there and I was like, holy fuck, what a cool spot. Like this dive bar, but it's not really a dive bar. It's got the aesthetics of a dive bar, but it's just cool for everybody. Um, every different type of clientele imaginable, which I well, love. I love that place. Yeah, I know you love it too. And so, I, so as soon as, from the second that I first went there, because you told me to come, I was obsessed with trying to get a job there. And you always had my back. You were always like, okay, as soon as one opens up, uh, but but the thing about Ethel's is people get a job there, they don't fucking leave. So <laughs> it took a long time for a spot to open up. You eventually did get me a job there, uh, which I'm eternally grateful for because it's the best training ground of any bar I've ever worked for, or worked at, sorry, and also the relationships that I've made in that place. And, and it is thanks to you. So once again, if I haven't said it lately, have I told you lately? Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> well, you know, I, I like to think it also helped me out because, I mean, you were a great guy to have around there for all those years. Oh, thanks. Um, and if you're, I mean, with the training grounds things, you know, it's funny, I've been listening to a number of these podcasts where we've had a few Ethel's alumni on there. But if you really look back at the crew who was there when we were kind of in our heyday in the mid-90s there, almost all of us, are either senior managers, owners, sales reps. We're all fairly high up in the bar and restaurant industry. Sure. And that came from that training ground. 100%. 100%. Yeah. It, it, that place is, a, like, especially back in the day, I obviously have no idea what it's like now. I imagine it's very similar. But back, way back in the day when you were, like, sledding that giant patio, making your own drinks, running back and forth, like, and doing it all on paper. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I clearly remember we were probably seven or eight years in, and Janelle, who was at that point the, the, the business manager of the business, came to me one day and says, I don't see any tabs behind the bar. The bar is full of regulars. 
you don't write their tabs down? I said, no, I know what they all drink. Yeah. He's like, what? Said, I know what they all drink. They all drink the same damn thing every day. Yeah. Not only do you know what they drink, you know how many of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, it's not, it's not like I know this guy drinks Coors Light. I know this guy's <laughs> going to drink three Coors Lights. And, and, and maybe four today because he's got a little extra gripe in his step. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, she, I said, check your counts. Have your counts ever been off? She just no. Said, then I'm charging them the right amount or more, so we're right. good. Right. <laughs> no, it's true. And but so I, I do want to talk about this because what that is the ultimate regular bar. Oh yeah. I do want to blow a little sunshine up your ass for a second if you're willing. Is that I think? Oh, that, <laughs> I think that you are a large part of that. Because you can talk, you can talk to anyone, something that you know, and that maybe some of our listeners don't, but I know, I can't do. I'm not, I'm not at your level with that. I'm not at Greg Brown's level at that. I'm not at J.R. Heberbrand's level at that. These are all people who work at Ethel's for anyone who's listening, um, long-timers at Ethel's. But you might be the master of like being able to talk to anyone about anything at any time. And as a result... Whether Glenn Smith realizes it or not, and I think sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't, uh, you built this group of regulars to sit at the bar who were there to chat with you. Like, and, and, and Glenn would later admit, like, those are the people who pay the electrical bill. Like, because they're there every fucking day. It's like you said, they're going to be there every day. They're going to drink the same amount of beer, like you said, maybe if they're feeling frisky, an extra one. But... Essentially, you know exactly what they're going to drink. Their bill's the same every day. It's one of those places at the bar. Yeah. And, you, and you ran that shit. And so can you, is, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Was, is there, did you, is that a skill that you developed over time? Was it something that was innate to you? Is it something that anyone can develop over time, or is it little, or little is it a combination? Yeah. yeah, it's a little bit of both. I mean, I've always been a talker my whole life. That's, that's not nothing new to me. Uh, and I was always the kind of, the kid, even as a little kid, who went and talked to everybody. Because I found people interesting. I, I find people fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't tend to spend a lot of time with any one of them in particular, but I find them fascinating. Almost like going to the zoo. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so I always made a habit of, of speaking to a lot of people. And then, of course, uh, having most of the university education helped out. But I grew up with farmers and rednecks and good old boys and could talk to them. Yeah. And never thought one was better than the other. And I think right. that was a big part of the trick. It's huge. If you treat everybody like a good human being until they don't treat you like one, you're going to get those kind of customers. Yeah. You know? And you look up down that bar, we had crown attorneys and lawyers and, and judges and mayors and and guys who dug ditches and, and mm. the occasional yeah. homeless bum who was a regular as well. Yeah. And if you treat them all well, then you got that, that feel, that, that, that home. You know, I always said a, a, great, a good bar is comfortable. A great bar is home. Right. You know, I, I, I still miss my home. I still refer to Ethel's as my home. I spent yeah. 17 years behind that wood. Yeah. And it's still the place I feel most, most comfortable in the world in. Yeah, me too. Uh, to this day, it's fuck. I've owned two bars since that fucking place, and, yeah. and, I've, and I've worked at two different ones as well while I was building bars. And I still, I feel like that place is my home. And it took me a lot longer to figure. Now I'm younger than you, but it took me a lot. Not that much, though. And I, it took me a lot longer to figure that out than it did you. I think for sure. Um, you, you seem to already have. 
Some of that's certainly in my wheelhouse, you know. Yeah, I, I feel like you had that from the second I fucking knew you. I grew up with, with parents who were in small business, who talked to everybody. I grew up in the American bar scene where it was, you know, the guys went after work. Like Glenn was saying when you had him on, you know, yeah. that, that American bar wasn't a thing in Canada up until the 70s and 80s. The neighborhood bar. And I, I fell in love with those places. Yeah. My dad was always in love with my mom. That's my parents met in the neighborhood bar. So that, that was always in my background. Uh, yeah. And uh, getting back to what something you had mentioned earlier um, about how... Uh, well, okay, so let's talk about, like, how you built up those regulars there and and how, like, let's, let's just talk a little bit more about how talking to all of those regulars built up that bar and now all of a sudden you've got just a group of people. And, and going back to what you had said earlier about how those customers want to know when certain people are working. So... Yeah. So, oh, sorry, that was a roundabout way to say that, but essentially... That is totally what happened at Ethel's. There would be people who came in. I know there are people who came in to see me, believe it or not, <laughs> on nights that I worked. But there were definitely people who maybe didn't hadn't figured out your fucking schedule yet. And they would come in and I'd be working the bar. And they would be so disappointed because it was me instead of you. And they'd be like, where's Big Dan tonight? I'm like, well, he can't work every fucking night. Like, I don't know. <laughs> you know but like, but this, this speaks to what you were saying earlier, like way earlier in the podcast about how... It's kind of, especially at a place like that, maybe it doesn't matter everywhere, maybe in a fine dining spot, not as much, but like at a place like that, that relies on regulars, they want to know if I come in on Monday night, Big Dan's going to be behind the bar and I can yeah. talk to Big Dan. I think no matter where you are, regulars are wildly important in our industry. Mm -hmm. uh, they're different, obviously. And a place like Ethel's, uh, it's, it's not about how fast you get their drink to them. I've never been the fastest bartender in the world. It's mm. not about anything like that. It's really about the family and community feel. Right. And so you know, I would make a point of not asking or, or telling my own stories about myself to start with. You'd always ask about them. And remember, it, people's names, I hate to say this, don't really matter in that situation. Right. I'm horrible with names. I always have been. But, but you if you remember what, what sport yeah. their kids play and what their hobby is and they're pissed off at their boss at work. That's what they want to come and talk about. And that's what makes them feel like family. And, they, and their drink's waiting for them the second they sit down. Oh, yeah. When, when you see you see them coming, get the drink out. Yeah. But it's really about feeling like you're part of something. And, yeah. and a, a group like Ethel's, we, we really built a family there. And some of those guys, that's the only family they had. Right. You know, we had a regular who had the stroke there, who you remember. Yes. And the only reason that man's alive is because no one saw him at the bar for a couple of days. Right. And somebody else who was at the bar had to go to his house with a key they used to feed his cat now and again and found him unconscious on the floor. Right, that's That's right. a demonstration of how important that, that family is, especially that group of bar rat kind of guys, the guys who are going to sit at the bar and maybe have two or three ex-wives and three or four kids that don't talk to them. This is their family. Yeah. And then there were also the families who came there. And, and you knew, you know, I was there when, when Bailey used to come over across the street from public school and poor Pop with her, with... Diane during the day at five years old and I was also there on her 19th birthday to serve her, her first drink uh, so you really become part of people's lives and, and I'm still in contact with a great number of, of the hardcore regulars from there that's good and I was there, there were five guys who sat at the bar all the time and I've told them this they paid for my my 
ex-wife's PhD, the five of those guys. <laughs> they're, still, they're still regular loyals to the point where they drive to Stratford and come and get takeout chicken for my chicken place to support me during this pandemic. Is that right? That's 20 a, that's, years later. That's fucking amazing, man. But these are the relationships you build. It, I, I'm so glad you say that. Like, at a place like that, it is... Well, you're cultivating a, a new family. And are you going to hang out with those people every day? No, they're not your friend group. And you're not their friend group. But for whatever those moments are in a day when they're having a rough time, and or maybe you are, like, yeah. you, you can... You know, I, I always felt very honored when, when people would invite me into their families as well. Yeah, I got invited to weddings and funerals, and just over for dinner and over for a barbecue yeah. and whatever else. And those were off, you know, you'd go because it was part of the job, but you'd also go because you did have an appreciation for those people. They weren't your close friends. They weren't you're going to go party with. No. But it, there, there's an appreciation there, and I think a, a unique thing to a neighborhood bar that you get in that, that family culture. But you know, I'm you also... You make a customer into a regular, you make a regular into family. Yeah. And, and I've also met a shit ton of people who I ended up partying with or become great friends with. Oh, yeah. Friends of mine, independent of that. I've had people... I, I there's a guy there and I want to call him out, but like, who has become a great friend of mine who's invested in my businesses, like, yeah, like these are the relationships we got in that place. Yep, and it's yeah, great. and and the in the business and that's the other thing. You know, you had all kinds of different people. So if you had a a problem or an issue, whether it was a leaky tap and you knew a plumber, or yeah. you're you know you, you got in trouble and you needed a lawyer at four a.m., you had his cell phone number because. He was around yeah. at your bar, yeah. and he came and came, came and bailed you out, or whatever it was. All those things have been wildly helpful personally over the, over the life, but as well as in business. You know, to be able to sit down with somebody sure. who owns two thirds of the corporate real estate in Kitchener Waterloo and discuss corporate leases, yeah, free, yeah, because you got them drunk four nights a week. For <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, yeah, <laughs> you know? and, and it's great that those people feel the same way as well, like because they feel like it's part of their home, and they, yeah. they eventually feel you are part of their family. And like, not all bars and restaurants are like that. Ethel's is pretty special in that way. But there are places like this all over the fucking planet, and 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 this is most cities have at least one. Yes, at least. And this is yeah. one of the things about the job that is so amazing. It, it really is. And maybe you, not you can't replace that. No, you can't. Yeah. And, and, and you, as you said a couple of times, I'm a pretty solitary guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I like living on my own. I like doing my own thing. But it's always nice knowing you have that group of people who, that you can rely on. Yes. Uh, that are more than customers, that are more than regulars, that are even in some ways more than, than, than friends. Well, uh, I, you really do become family. That's a good way to put it. And, uh, like, I can't even tell you many times you told me, oh, fuck, like, because you would know before I would, obviously. I would more, work more on the floor there. But uh, being at the bars was where kind of the more, we used to call them lonely hearts. I don't mean that to sound. Oh, no, I know like, what you're saying. Yeah. I don't mean it to sound, like, in any way derogatory. It's literally just, like, guys who would come in by themselves and yeah. want to talk and, and you knew all of them, and you would be like, "Oh, you need a, like, you, said, you got need a car part, you need a good deal on a, getting your car yeah. fixed, or a good deal." I know on a this. guy. I know a guy. You knew all the fucking guys. So, talking about that too, um, we haven't talked a lot about this um, on the podcast yet. Do you ever feel like you were like that, that kind of 
1980s, 90s bartender, stereotypical bartender who was like, the guy who was like, tell me your problems. And <laughs> Therapy, <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You certainly you have to be a bit of a therapist. You have to yeah. be a bit of a, uh, you know, a parent and a, and a brother and a, and a therapist all rolled into one some days in there because that's yeah. what they need. And, uh, and that's what keeps the lights on in the bar is the regulars. <laughs> yes. And I, I don't know if it was just that place was special for that or if that's kind of changing in the industry where things are becoming a little bit more removed. The, I think the, the, with, with the the advent of, of internet and more of the you know Facebook friends and the rest of that, some of that's removed. But the, I think there's always going to be a need for, especially lonely people, to go have some place where they feel like they belong. Yeah, and that's and, tough for them right now, I'm sure. Yeah, it, it, imagine right now if if you're you know a divorced guy whose whose kids don't talk to you, you're sitting at home by yourself. The suicide rate must be going through the damn roof. Right. And I started to bring that down, but but it's it's true. And those those people became family. And and of course, the divorce rate amongst that group is very high. When, when my marriage was <laughs> when my marriage was having problems, a few of those guys were trying to give me advice, and I said, "Hey, any of you guys not here? You know your your divorce lawyer lawyer's name, like first name basis." <laughs> okay, you can all go away now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not you the know, advice you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they have a place there, and it was certainly and. and a lot of tradesmen, a lot of guys, and, and women too. But but of course, Ethel's was much more of a male-centric crowd in those days. Sure. Uh, but it, it, they needed a family, and they needed a place to be. And mm. I think there'll always be a place for that. Yeah, I still feel like you are the the. I can't remember the guy's name now on the show, but you're like the bartender from the Regal Beagle at, uh, in Three's Company. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gotta know everybody, you know, yeah. and, and it's and. and Part of being a little bit of a an isolated person myself is that I know everybody, but I'm not too in everybody's stuff either. So it, right. there's a separation there. Well, yeah, you're not you're not trying to get up on their shit. It's just like whatever. Yeah. Like you're just there as a sounding board for what they wish to tell you. Yeah, and and I remember the stories, and, I, and I'll tell them back to them sometimes when they're forgetting them themselves. And it, well, I, you I remember love that. You remember, yeah. and you cared, yes. and I think that's a huge part of it as well. Like, yeah, I mean, honestly, that's. It, it's a characteristic that I don't have. It's a characteristic that a lot of people in this industry don't have, and you were fantastic at. And I think you, I think, I, with, without putting words in your mouth, I think you've made a career based on it. I, I certainly, I always said, you know, I, I've figured out how to monetize being able to talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. and, and it works. You know? but, but more than that, care, <laughs> giving a fuck. Like, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not hyperbole. No, like, they are not, to. yeah. Hospitality has to be genuine. Yeah, or people, can people, see through. people can you tell. People can. You go to a, a chain restaurant and the waitress or waiter comes up and, "Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm so happy today." Yeah, it just it, it rings hollow and it is yeah. hollow and it's fake and it often puts people off. Yes, I'm having a crappy day. Somebody asks me how my day's going. I tell them, <laughs> yeah. "I'm having a crappy day today. How you doing?" Yeah, and, and I think in the current situation I'm in, that initially put a few of my partners and initially managers and in the more fine dining end of the business off. Yeah. But they realized I'm able to pull it off. And, and right. I've had numerous people say this to me over the years. You say shit that nobody else could get away with. Right. But it's because it comes from a genuine place. Right. It, yeah. It's, I'm, I'm speaking reality. I'm not going to, I'm not going to blow sunshine up your ass. I'm not going to blow smoke at you. I'm going to tell you what I think. Right. And if you don't like it, tough shit. There's somebody else waiting outside to buy a beer. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's the way it goes. But on the other hand, I'm also going to listen to your problems and genuinely be interested in them if, if I can. Yes. Yeah. To the point that you can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody uh, has a breaking point. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about, I want to get to what you're doing now. We're going to skip ahead a little bit. Yeah. This conversation has been great so far, but the, I, I want to talk about what you're doing now because I'm super interested in the collective that you're involved in right now. So you, you let's just move ahead. I, we don't really need to deal with Fratberger that much. I know you, that was your first shot at ownership. It didn't go well. Um, I learned a lot, though. It cost me a lot, but I learned a lot. We'll yeah. leave it at that. Yeah, and like, the, it was a toxic situation, and Glenn didn't even want to talk about it at all, so no. let's, just, let's just say, like, if I could just sum it up for you, and you can tell me I'm wrong, but it, the problem was too much ownership that did not get along. The problem was poorly selected ownership at that time. Okay. We, we okay. broke a lot of our own rules because we got into a situation where we had to open very quickly or lose a, a significant investment. We had a, a, an original partner who we had not vetted correctly, who bailed on us partway through and ended up in lawsuits and everything else and had to grab basically the next few people to put their hand up. And, and that was a mistake. Yeah. And eventually it was a lot of big egos in a room that didn't get along and it, and it went very badly in the end. But, but you left like this like cemented great... Yeah. paying job to go do that. And now you're out drifting in the wind. And, and how old would you have been then? Uh, almost mid-30s, 35, 37, somewhere in there. No, it's got to be older than that. I'm 51 right now. Yeah, but this is Fratburger time, right? It's Fratburger. Early 40s, baby. I might have been in my early 40s. I'll, I'll be honest, I forget what year it was. I could look yeah. it up somewhere. But Okay, no. Okay, anyway, regardless... Yeah. You're a, a big man, you're like, and, and let's talk a little bit about this before we get to what you're doing now, which I think is super fascinating, but I do want to touch on this for a little bit. You and your situation, you're a big man, you got a big beard, you got the long ponytail, you, like, you've been doing one thing in town for so long, now you're getting back and you're trying to look for work again, and uh, kind of what you told me was it was sort of hard for you. coming. Yeah, it was. It was. I definitely, there, there was, I mean, 17 years behind the bar, and I will very proudly say I won a couple of, I think, three, year, three years, best bartender in town yeah. things, but, yeah. but I, was, I was so associated with Ethel's and that style of doing things, right. and of course that look, and Fred Burger had a lot of that same style going on for it, yes. uh, that, it, that yeah, it was difficult, and in some ways it was that people didn't want to give me a shot out of the... Bubble that they saw kind you. of thing that they like, thought I'd, I'd go beat somebody up in a fine dining restaurant or something because I also <laughs> had a reputation doing security for a long time. Yeah, and, and sometimes you run into a, a manager who was significantly younger and less experienced than me. That was, I had two literally tell me, "I'm not even going to interview you. You're going to have my job in six months if right. I interview you and hire you." And I kept saying, "But I don't want your job right. <laughs> at all. I, do, I just want a job." Yeah. 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 And finally um, was able to get into the Duke of Wellington and kind of crack my way in there uh, through Ethel's regulars because mm. they always had pretty young girls working at the weekends, day bars at, at the Duke. And Desi, who was the owner who I knew for a long time, uh, sat in on the interview because the owner, the manager at that time was terrified to interview me. And she, she said, uh, look, we're going to have to ask the regulars what they think. And there was enough crossover between the two bars that everybody knew me. They said, oh, God, get him in here. He can talk. He can. Right. There's always a pretty girl around. Yeah. So my ability to talk once again got me my job there. But right. nobody really wanted to give me a shot outside of the industry. 
outside of that part of the industry until I, I ran to a, a brand new restaurant in town that basically didn't know what they were doing and hired me because I had a long resume. Right. So I, that must have been humbling, though. Like all it was tough. The, it all was the really fucking, tough. All the fucking skin you had in the game at that point in yeah. your life, like you knew what you could fucking do. Like, and even yeah. people who knew us well who, who were in fine dining and casual fine dining who, who I considered friends and regulars would kind of give me the brush off. That was tough. Just yeah, and, and uh, probably because they just didn't see you in that role. No, they they saw me as big damn behind the bar at Ethel's. Right. Oh, that was me for a long time, uh, right. and they they saw me as very one dimensional there, and that was right. unfortunate. So, so is that hard? Yeah, it was really hard because I I always I never saw myself as one dimensional because I right. had that ability to speak to everybody. Yeah. Because I had that ability to do a lot of different things. I never considered myself one dimensional until I hit that wall of, oh shit, maybe I am. Yeah. And I really. Honestly, sat in a, in a little crappy apartment because I was going through a divorce at the same time, Ugh. and uh, and and thought about getting out of the industry and going get a factory job or something. I, I was really it, it was depressed. There's no two ways about it. It was depressing and it was yeah. clinically depressing for a time. Uh, but then like I said I, I got my my toes in with some people who weren't knowledgeable about the industry uh, and, and who appreciated what I had to bring to the table. Uh, realized very quickly they weren't going to make a go of it, but then decided that, that I enjoyed that side of the industry. And that's when I decided to, to take a crack at Stratford. Right. And then was it easier to get a job in Stratford? Yes and no. Um, first couple of places I applied to were a little too fine dining for me, probably. Okay. Um, I, I got two interviews at Langdon Hall. Right. And eventually I think the sommelier asked me because he didn't like my long hair. And I refused <laughs> to cut it. And, and I refused. Yeah. Refuse to change who I am for anybody, so Good for you. that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. So uh, eventually what happened was that I put, an inter- I put a, a resume in at, at Mercer Hall. And I put the resume in because I recognized the girl who was the manager there at the time because she used to manage uh, some of the uh, before Beer Town properties in, in uh, Kitchener and Waterloo. Uh, charcoal Group. Charcoal Group, thank you. She managed for them for a while. And they used to all come to Ethel's after work. Right. On Monday nights, and I'd cut JR at seven o'clock, and at nine o'clock, all the bar and restaurant staff would walk in and serve themselves, and I'd make the tips. They all thought I was, they all thought I was a genius. <laughs> well, you might have been. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody else was making the drinks, and you're making the money. Yeah. So I got the interview based on that, on the fact that she knew me from there. And the interview was one of those interviews that wasn't an interview. It ended up being a two-hour conversation about philosophy of the bar business and the restaurant oh, business. Isn't that great? And I think the line that finally got me the job, we got down to talking about wine. And, of course, wine at Ethel's was red, white, and it's going to be probably pretty stale. Yeah. And she asked me, oh, how's your wine knowledge? I said, well, you know, I've got some and blah, 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 blah. But I'm pretty out of date. Said, but my bullshit's exceptional. <laughs> and she cracked that exact same laugh, and, and I got the job. And she's yeah. now my business partner. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's how you crack in. And how did you find – because I know – like, I don't think, like, it's not surprising to me that you excelled at that as well, but did, did you surprise yourself, or were you, did you know that that would be easy for you, or was it a difficult transition of moving from what you had done your whole life into, like, a fine dining? It was a learning curve, which actually I needed at the time. Yeah. Um, I got, I, I was hired as a bartender to take over their bar program, and there was a tiny little, I think it was a six-seat bar that, that it was mostly a service bar. And I started being me behind the bar. Of course, I'm talking to people. I'm developing regulars, and I'm doing all that stuff. And, I, and at the same time, developing some cocktails for them. And mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. doing a few of those things. But Jesse, who was at that point the manager there and is now my business partner, immediately saw that my strongest skills were not necessarily in being a fast service bartender, but in the fact that I could talk to anybody. Yes. And in fine dining, that's not the bartender's job. That's the waiter's job. Right. So she, against my... I really didn't want to do it. She put me on the floor, and I, I had never... Oh. I hated waiting tables. Hey, hey listen, motherfucker. I worked <laughs> with you for 16 years. Yeah. You wouldn't walk to a table if I fucking took all my Fuck effort no. to carry you. The, the, the customers <laughs> came and got their drinks. And that was just the way I was. But, uh, you know... So, so dragging me out from behind the bar was was a big change. But I also, you know, so I didn't think about a lot of things at the time. I knew I had to change for longevity's sake. Uh, so I, I gave it a crack, and I found very quickly that it doesn't matter where I talk to people. I like talking to people. Well, I'm glad that you figured that out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I love food, as you can tell from looking at me. Yeah, I love but you... food, but I, but I also, I come from a gourmet background. My mother was yes. a phenomenal cook my whole life. And my father hates fine dining, so my mother would take me to fine dining restaurants, even as a kid. So I already had the knowledge, and I already had that kind of stuff. And you know me, when I get into something, I get into it. So I started reading the books, and I started figuring out who was doing what, and and really knowing it, and going in and pestering the hell out of the chefs with how things are made and why they're made that way, and really looking for a nugget of something I can turn into a story. Right. And that story then sells the product. And the it's story then gets spread around and people come back and keep talking about the story and whatnot. I'm glad you said that because it's all fucking sales and all sales is storytelling. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And that's, my father has been a salesman his whole life and, and he's a better salesman than I am. Mm. And he can sell ice Eskimos, as they used to say in the yeah. less politically correct days. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but he always taught me that's it. It's about talking to people and, and, and find some little thing that you can spin, even if you're talking about some fairly obscure fine dining technique or dish, find some little thing that you can spin that people are going to be able to relate to. Yeah. Reading and the course, that's why I always did Ethel's was, was relate to people, and this was just doing it in a different way. Yes. Uh, and doing it in nicer clothes and, and not wearing shorts to work every day anymore. And, okay. Well, and, and it, but it was good to grow up in some ways. And I can tell you, like, as someone who's known you forever and worked with you forever. I was surprised when I heard you were doing fine dining, but the more I thought about it, I'm like, of course he can. He's, he, he can fucking, like you said, you're a salesman. You can do this fucking job. If you can create the regular crowd at Ethel's, of course you can go walk to a table and sell them what they need to, what they want without them well, you, knowing. Well, you realize very quickly in fine dining, you've got a couple of classes of customers, but one of the classes of customers, any especially casual fine dining, is the celebratory crowd, right? People are coming yeah. out for a wedding sure. or an anniversary or whatever it is. And that's the same thing. They're going to come back every year for the wedding or for the anniversary if you made it memorable. Yes. So I'm going to get, you know, maybe they're only going to come out once a year, but I'm going to get them every damn year. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to get them to sit in my section if I can. So, so, did, and did, so did you, I guess this is what you're saying, you kind of found that easier than you thought you might I did uh, in some ways. In, in other ways, I certainly didn't have the uh, you know the white tablecloth service. Were you nervous? I was. I was really nervous. The first time I, I had to go to a table where it was definitely VIPs, where it was, you know, you, you knew these were diners, not eaters, yeah. and, and that, that differentiation you make in the fine dining world. They knew what they were talking about, and, and I was worried that I wouldn't, that I wouldn't be able to come across. 
But you're the, kind of guy, you're the kind of guy that's going to do the research as soon as you get nervous. Did the so, research, and I'm fast on my feet, and I can yeah. tap dance my way out of most things. Bullshit if you need to, right? Yeah, bullshit yeah. if you need to. Yeah. So that talk to me a little bit about that. At that age in your life and not much, that many years in the game, what's it like to like just suddenly be nervous again in the job? You know, it was actually invigorating. Yeah. Uh, I really thought about leaving the business entirely. And I'm so happy I didn't because I love it. Uh, but but I really kind of done as much as I could with Apples and right. that kind of thing. I'd gotten as good at that as I was going to get. And that's the reason I eventually left Open Fret. I was bored. Right. I could right. do it literally with my eyes closed. Yeah. And there was no challenge anymore. So to find a new challenge that I also really enjoyed that was captivating and, and, and allowed me to use some of my scientific background for the new scientific methods of cooking and to really dive into something like this again and learn what was exciting. It was terrifying, don't get me wrong. Yeah. You know, I'm used to being the guy. And, yeah, and you yeah, know, with yeah. that Ethel's, I was the guy. If I said it was, if I said blue was brown, it was brown, man. And that's the way it went. Yeah. But now I'm, a, now I'm a junior waiter and you're walking in going, oh shit, there's 20 year olds here who got more experience doing this than I do. Right. But I realized that I couldn't be a fine dining waiter the same way a very classic French waiter was going to be. I, right. I'm not that kind of person. No. Nope. But as long right. as I let my personality come through, restrain it some so I don't scare people or use inappropriate language, yeah. but still allow my personality to come through and that honest hospitality to come through, that's what was that was. Yeah, you was put important. your own spin on it, right? Like you, you just. And, and I was able and, to take. And luckily, we're in a, an area right now where that's more accepted in the fine dining industry. And that's, than, I think I hit, I was supposed to say, I hit yeah. right at the right time where the, the casual fine dining thing is. I could, at this point now, uh, 10 years into fine dining, I could work and I have worked white linen cloth, you know, five star service. I hate it. Yeah, we all hate so it. It's so cardboard and it's so rigid. It teaches uh, you a lot, but we all hate but it. But it does. So I had to learn <laughs> those skills. But I also had to learn how to make those skills more human. And I think that's one of the things we've done very well with at our restaurants is taking some of what can be very intimidating food, if you're not a foodie kind of person, and making it comfortable. The fact mm. that anybody can walk in that front door, I don't give a shit who you are. I'm going to find the language that you want to use to describe the exact same piece of food right. that you're going to be comfortable with and eat it and go, oh, my God, that was delicious. Because I know it's delicious. Right. I just got to convince you that you want to eat it. Well, that's and, and, and part of that is making you comfortable with it. Well, that, I'm glad you said that too, is because we do know, like, if you work at a restaurant like that, don't get, don't fucking kid yourself. We know it's, the food's going to be amazing. Well, yeah. We we just got to convince you of it. <laughs> I just got to convince you that's amazing. Yeah. And there's that fine line, you know. We, we get a lot of folks coming, and you can, you know, it's the 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 tradesman kind of crowd, the guys who this is a significant portion of their monthly disposable income is right. going to this meal. Right. So I'm not going to maybe push you towards a $100 bottle of wine. No. Because that's going to push you out of your comfort zone. And even if you enjoy it, it's going to make you really unhappy with the experience. You go, oh, shit. Right. But I can get you a really nice $30 or $40 bottle of wine and talk about it a little bit and make you feel – or make you feel just as comfortable ordering a light beer. Yeah. This is what you like, and it'll go with the food. And do you kind of feel like you have an extra obligation for that crowd as well? Like to I make certainly – yeah. They're my favorite crowd. Yeah. Because you know, you know – if you're coming to a restaurant and you make – a million dollars a year, and this isn't any skin off your nose. You're just coming out to eat sometimes. That's but easy. these people are coming out and spending a significant portion mm. of their disposable income yes. on you and what you and your team have created that day. That's yes. 
it's humbling in a lot of ways. It well, really it's is. We, we should look at it as an obligation. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. And, and, and you have an obligation to all your customers. But I say, especially I think the ones for whom it's more of an emotional or a physical or a financial investment. Yeah, a reach, a reach for them. Yeah. yeah, or they're going to reach a little bit. And, you know, maybe I'm going to bump you up to a slightly nicer thing and, and maybe I got a deal for you or whatever else. But you're going to leave feeling you got your money's worth and you're going to leave not feeling like somebody was looking down their nose at you because you used the wrong fork right. or because you didn't wipe that crumb off the side of your mouth or whatever. I don't know. You know we'll make jokes and have fun and, and, and try and make people comfortable. And that's right. really, I say, it's that genuine hospitality. I, I try very hard to treat any guest, any place I've worked, as if they're a guest in my home. Mm. And, and keep that in the back of your mind and yeah. expect the same from them to, to act as <laughs> sure, yeah. my home yeah. so there's, there's obligations on both sides yeah that's well said and I, um, I want to talk a little bit before we let you go. We're go we've been going on but this has been such a great conversation um, I want to talk a little bit about how this relationship works with the new restaurants that you're involved in with the co-op sort of feel to it. Can you explain, like, I, I, I know you're saying you're a part owner, but it, can you just explain how this whole thing yeah. works with this with collective that you're involved the in? The base group, we're, we're all working together at, at Mercer Hall. Right. So the, the base group that started all this, executive chef, chef, sous chef, uh, and money of the front of house staff. And that thing, went horribly wrong, involved cops and lawyers and everything. So we thought, you know what? We're tired of working for people who don't know how to work in restaurants. We're tired of working for business people who aren't restaurant people. So we decided to do our own thing. Uh, so we formed a corporation and we all own shares in that corporation. Uh, varying amounts of the shares, the corporation that owns the restaurants and now several restaurants and several properties. But the goal was always that a rising tide raises all ships. Okay. So I, I'm a just, chef. I'm going to stop you for one second. Yeah. Just to get into the weeds about the business part for a second. Because I am obviously, my my businesses are corporations as well. But I own a gigantic portion of that corporation. So I don't think that's exactly what's happening in your situation. No, we we did not go co-op route because co-op uh, has a whole lot of legal crap that doesn't work very well. Right. Corporations are there for a reason, right? They, they give yeah. you a lot of legal to protections. Protect us. They give you a lot of yeah. exactly. So we went with the corporation route, but initially uh, it was set up so that everyone had reasonably similar amounts of shares. Those who had a little more money, of course, had larger amounts of shares. Uh, but everybody has a say, and no one person owned enough that they could just say, "This is it. We're doing this." Okay. You have to be able to convince at least two other people to join your whatever it is you're doing, and do it. So no matter what we do, it has to be at least two people agreeing to do it. So what are the uh, challenges with that? There's huge challenges with that. There's egos, there's there's attitudes, there's, you know, front and back of house is always different. Uh, it, it's been very challenging over the last five years. We've lost uh, a couple of partners who were from the original group who just couldn't deal with it. Uh, we've had to add more uh, to one person's responsibilities than others. But the way we've always looked at it is that it's not... Uh, It's not anyone's one job to run it, but everybody has their job. Mm. So we all own a corporation together. We decide what the corporation's going to do. See, but if you're I, the executive chef, you do the executive chef's job. If you're the front of house manager, you do the front of house manager's job. Mm -hmm. And once a year when we get together and have our annual general meeting, there is always a question of, okay, 
does everyone feel jobs being done well? Mm -hmm. And if we don't, we take a vote, and then we have had to fire one, had to fire an executive chef. And that wasn't easy. He's still a partner in the business. Right. But how easy that wasn't. He's still a partner in the damn business. See, uh, but we got together and did it. So, well, I'm very, I'm very fascinated by this because I'm like, for my businesses, the couple that I've owned, and, and more specifically, let's talk about the one I currently own. I would have a hard time. You need a certain amount of ego to say I'm going to yep. open a place, and I think that I know enough about this business that I can provide a room and an experience and a menu and a drink menu. Whether you're specifically involved in all those things or not, you're involved in all the major decisions oh, yeah. that, that, that I think people want to come to. There's a certain amount of ego that goes into that. So it, it's hard even to have another partner in those situations. So you're talking about multiple partners. I think yeah. like, I... I can't. It's really hard. And the only reason this thing worked at all is because we had worked together as a group running somebody else's restaurant first. We learned on somebody else's dime what we could all do and the mistakes we would make. And we learned who the good ones were and who the weak ones were. And we learned that we all have egos and we all have our own ideas and our own areas, but we've also learned that nobody really knows the entire business. Mm -hmm. Uh, you always, you know, no matter how good an owner you are, you always need a great chef. No matter how good a bartender you are, you always need a good bar back. You, 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 nobody does this by themselves. Right. And it's not always been easy. Uh, there's, like I said, there's been some pretty big battles in this thing. And the group is shaking out differently than we thought it would. Okay. Uh, the Red Rabbit, the original one, is owned still by the most of the original ownership team. But as we branched out, some decided they didn't want to branch out. Right. Uh, so some didn't come along on the other businesses. So we also have a, an overarching business called Ramshackle Industries uh, that only four of us are, are owners in. Or sorry, three of us now are owners in. Uh, and we own shares in all the businesses and all the properties, but not everybody owns all the shares in all the properties. So it very much became a come along when you can thing. But it also only works because we knew that nobody was going to be an owner here. Nobody was going to take the lion's share of the cash Okay, uh, so we're all going to have to do a little less. Like, I, I kick a lot more of my my tips back to the back of house than most places ever would. Mm-hmm. We, we pool much more evenly so that we can say, you know what? In February, when I'm not making any tips, I get a little more money out of the business to make it up. Okay, so, so we new, all draw a very similar salary. It's a new way of doing things. Um it's a very difficult way of doing things, and I would not recommend it for everybody. I really okay. wouldn't. Would you, would you do it again? If I could find this exact same group of people again, yeah, I think I would. Yeah, uh, there's, been some, there's been some tough times. Don't get me wrong. But uh, a big part of this is Jessie. She's uh, Jessie Votery is the general, uh, operates the general manager, and she's just one of those people who never turns off. She's got you know, her motors running 24-7. She's got worlds of energy. Lots of great ideas. Um, and the fact that she and I came together was very beneficial because, you know me, I'm more of a slow, methodical kind of guy. Yeah. And I've very much become the consigliere. I'm the one that, okay, where's she going to go? And 
I really want to go yell at this person, but I'm going to go tell you first, and then we'll figure out right. what I'm actually going to say. Right, right, right. Uh, so having those people who counter each other, not only in the business side, but in the personal side. You know, our, our executive chef, John, is a very, much like me, a very slow and steady kind of guy, whereas the sous chef is bouncing off the walls every three seconds. So and I think somehow that, managed to kind of blend that all together. So I think you've kind of answered my question already, but it's like, it's almost like you need the perfect team to pull off something like this. You do. You need the, the right mix of experience, uh, youthful energy, ego, money, and overall talent. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a single person who works with us now or who has worked with us as a partner who I wouldn't hire in two seconds if I was opening a new restaurant. No, that's great. And like, what am I way to hire? Because it sounds like a fucking nightmare to me, but it's very clearly working out for you. And I think it's because you have the right people. It is. And, and I said, it's, I don't want to toot my own horn, but, I, but I, I came in towards the end of this thing being put together. And I was kind of the last piece that fell into place. And I'm the one who can, as I always have, talk to everybody. Yeah. So if, you know, GM and the chef are having an argument, they both come to me, express their sides. I'll kind of try to distill it down. And then with the three of us will sit down for 10 minutes and then I'll get up and leave and let them finish the conversation. That's a weight on you though, always being the it it's the mediator. I'm good at. But you are good at. Are, are you like have you have you just found that that's that's your that's what you're good at? It's become my role in in this business. Uh, no. I don't have the energy anymore to do the god going back and forth with your landlord over that that stuff, but when it comes down to time to have to have the meeting with the landlord and someone needs to be able to stand there and say this is how we're doing it. That's what I'm good at. Yeah. So, well, you're, well, let me tell you this, my friend, Dan. You're good at a lot of fucking things in this industry. Yeah, this is why you've made such a great career. But I'm so happy that this is what has become your life. You seem happy. You seem like you're doing what you should always have been doing. And uh, I personally, I'm thrilled because I grew up with you in this industry. And I'm so glad you came on the podcast to talk to me and talk to Dan, who's also been a big part of your life as well yeah you, you, you've been a huge part of my life in this i've industry. hired both of you more than once <laughs> you have, you have, sure. you have. you've been a huge <laughs> part of my life in this industry and and you're a huge figure in the industry my friend so uh, thank, thanks for thank coming you. on we really appreciate it this conversation to me was fascinating so um maybe maybe we'll do part two one day always happy to chat you know that okay love <laughs> thanks you, for having me on i love you love you okay. thanks man Thanks.